I'm excited to uh, continue in our series, King Jesus, this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open that up to Genesis chapter 3. So just the third chapter of the Bible. So if you're new to reading the Bible, um, that's just the the very first few pages there. Um, You'll find Genesis chapter 3. And feel free to use your Bible app or... um, Uh, The words will also be on the screen behind me as well. But as I said, this morning we're going to keep on going in this new sermon series that we're in called King Jesus. And this is a sermon series where we want to look through the Bible cover to cover and just hit major themes. Okay, we're not going to hit every verse, but major themes in the Bible and, and try to look there to discover what does it really mean in my life to submit to Jesus as king over my life. And so one of the things we said we were gonna do in the beginning part of this series is we were gonna build a theology together, all right? Theology, the the study of God. And so we're just gonna put together some statements about what we believe about God, what we believe about who we are and who God created us to be, and put that in a simple form a memorable form so that later on in the series, we can come back to it and go, okay, how do I specifically live my life according to this? And so last week was our first statement that we put into this theology that we're building together. And this is what we said. We said, in love, God created me not to be the center of my story. That was our first theological statement. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. So if you're new to the series, allow me to catch us up uh, real quick so you understand what we mean when we say that. I want you all to imagine something with me for a second. Imagine being in a relationship with another person. And in that relationship, you are 100% known and you feel no shame, all right? You are completely exposed. Every thought, every weakness you might have, every motive in your heart, every fantasy, everything, everything is completely known by the other person And yet, you feel no shame. You feel like there's nothing to hide. You feel like you don't need to project a more favorable image of yourself. Just no shame at all. I'm not sure if if this is possible in our world today. But when we read about the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and this is what we talked about last week, this is the picture we are given of relationships at God's creation, both relationships between mankind and God and with one another. We are fully known, fully exposed, and yet fully loved, accepted, and without shame. That's what Genesis chapter two, verse 25 says. It says, and the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, when we look at that word naked, now, of course, what it means is that they were physically exposed, unclothed. But this word has a little more nuanced attached to it as well. Another place this word is used 
here in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 42 uh, in a military context. Uh, So this term uh, is used in the context of a spy would be sent from one nation to another to spy out, and the text says, the nakedness of the land. So in other words, a spy would gather intelligence of the places where a land that they wanted to attack was naked, or in other words, vulnerable, open to attack, unguarded, unprotected. And and that's the same word used here in Genesis 2.25. So this word naked doesn't just mean physically exposed, it, it also means vulnerable unguarded, unprotected, open to attack. No reason to have your guard up. I have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. I don't fear that anyone would ever attack me or exploit me or take advantage of me or harm me. So relationships in this context, fully known, no shame, naked, vulnerable, no fear, all of that, this is the Jewish concept of shalom, of peace in relationships, wholeness, harmony, right? Nothing to fear. Everything is working as it should. And that was God's kingdom at creation. God, man, the creation, perfect relationship with one another. No need for protection, no fear. If you remember from last week, we studied who God created us to be, what God wanted us to do, and why God created us in the first place. And if you missed that sermon, you need to go back and listen to it because this is one of those sermon series that builds on one another. Okay, so that's on our website. That's on our podcast. Go and listen to it. But let me, let me recap those questions, right? Because we learned that God made us in his image, all right, and what that means is that God created us to represent him, his character, his purposes, who he is with our lives. And God said, as image bearers, here's what I want you to do. I want you to subdue the earth. And we looked at that word last week. That's a weird word, subdue, because what that word means is to exert your will upon something or someone in order to get something out of it. That's what it means to subdue something. In order to subdue something, you have to have authority and you have to have a free will in order to exert that authority. And so God creates us with those qualities. He gives us a free will and he delegates us authority and then he commissions us, go bear my image as you subdue the earth for my glory. That's what God wants us to do. And so subdue the earth, what that means here is to work the earth, advance in knowledge, create culture, build civilization, do all of those things to the glory of God. And then the reason why God created us, as we saw last week, is because he is love. In love, God creates us, and his desire for us is joy, That's what God wants for us. And so our joy is found in bearing the image of God, living for his glory as we live our lives and subdue the earth. And and that is our theology. In love, God created us not to be the center of our story, but for him to be the center. For our lives to be completely centered on him and his purposes and desires. Because we bear his image. We don't bear our image. And at creation, mankind was living 
according to this purpose. So think about this for a second. Eve, being completely naked and exposed, sees Adam, one who has been given strength, power, free will to subdue the earth, one who could subdue her. And there is nothing in Adam that she fears. Nothing in Adam that makes her think that he might take advantage of her. There's nothing she feels she needs to hide from Adam. She sees someone who represents the love of God with his freedom and his strength and his purpose. That's what Eve sees in Adam. Or Adam, being completely exposed, naked and vulnerable, sees Eve. One who has been given strength, power, free will to subdue the earth. One who could use those things to subdue him. And there's nothing in Eve that he fears. Nothing in Eve that makes him think that she might take advantage of him. There's nothing in Eve that he feels he needs to hide from her. He sees someone who represents the love of God with her freedom and her strength and her purpose. Right, this was Shalom. But this kind of pure relationship, right? This purity of trust and goodness and safety is not something any of us have fully experienced. Maybe we've tasted it, but haven't fully experienced. We have not experienced this kind of peace in our souls. We long for it. Our world desperately longs for that. Uh, Two weeks ago, when we began this series, we said that it's so important that the church be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. That our world is anxious because something is wrong with the world, and everyone knows it. And everyone is trying to figure out how to fix it or how to escape it, right? And so that just creates this collective anxiety. How do we find the better life? And for those who don't believe in God, maybe they're an atheist, they don't believe, they, they believe that all we are is biological matter and really there's no purpose and meaning attached to it other than what we create for ourselves and, and that's all we are. Those who believe that, they have to come to grips with the belief that suffering, that death, that brokenness and shame that we experience in our lives, they have to come to grips with the fact that it's normal. We're biological matter, and so all of those feelings, all of those emotions, the things that grip our heart, that's normal. It's just life. And the best way to get over it is to get over it. But, but the church, those who believe in Jesus, we know the beginning of the story, and we know that this is completely abnormal. The world did not start this way. Something has happened and it's not normal. It's not okay the world is this way. The suffering you experience, the brokenness, those things, it's abnormal. It is not the way it should be. Death is abnormal. It is not a fact of life. It is not the way it should be. Our anguish and despair, that's valid. 
We feel it because it's real. Something has happened to the world and it's not an option just to get over it. We need to know what happened to God's creation because this isn't how it started. Genesis 3 is going to tell us what happened. And so before we get to Genesis 3, I wanna give us our next statement that we're gonna insert into our theology. All right, so I'm gonna say it to you and I'm gonna have us say both statements out loud, okay? Because we're gonna do this over every week to remember it. So here's our statement that we're gonna add today. It's this, in sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. That's our next statement. So let's do both of these statements together. So last week's statement was this, say it with me out loud. In love, God created me to not be the center of my story. And today's statement is, in sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. And so let's read from Genesis chapter three to discover what we mean by that. So I'm gonna read verses one to four for us to start. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so they're in the garden, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. You will not surely die. So in the midst of this perfect kingdom that God had created, this serpent appears. And and what we know about him is that he's crafty. And he wants to convince Eve that what God said is untrue. That's his goal. Now, we know from other scriptures that this wasn't just some normal snake in the garden. This was Satan, the the devil. And, And now, we don't know much about Satan and how he was able to infiltrate God's kingdom like this, but we have some scriptures that give us clues, specifically Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And we know Satan was an angel. You know, angels were these heavenly beings that God created to serve his purposes and his will, One thing about angels is that they were not image bearers of God like we were. They were not. And at some point between God's creation and this encounter in Genesis 3 between the serpent and Eve, Satan, this angel, turns on God. And it seems like from Ezekiel 28, although there's debate over this one, that what happened is Satan saw the grandeur of what God created and jealousy began to flood in his heart. And he goes, I want to be the king of this. I don't want God to be the king of all this and me serve his purposes. I want to be king of all of this. This is amazing what God created. I want it for myself. And so Satan develops a strategy because Satan cannot overpower God and Satan cannot overpower you as one of his image bearers. But what Satan can do He can deceive you. He can lie to you. 
That's what he does. The word devil means the slanderer. The word Satan means the accuser. And this is what Jesus says about Satan in John chapter eight, verse 44. Jesus says this. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies, right? Satan's strategy is to deceive you. And look, he's crafty. He's really good at it. And so as the serpent approaches Eve, he deceives her. He preys on her nakedness and vulnerability and plants the idea in Eve's heart that what God has said is not true. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks to Adam and Eve. He reveals himself to Adam and Eve and shares them truth. He tells them of their purpose and he guides them on how to live. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He tells them to subdue the earth. He tells them to have dominion over creation. He tells them to enjoy the garden. And he also says that one tree, don't eat of it. Don't eat from that one tree. And at first, this restriction did not bother Adam and Eve because they trusted God. Okay, I get all of these trees except for that one. Okay, God, I trust you. There's a reason for it. I don't need to know. They trusted him. God's revelation to them was their source of truth. God's revelation to us is our source of truth. But the serpent planted a fear in their heart that God was withholding good from them, that God's word was not reliable, that maybe they needed to start looking out for themselves. Maybe it was time to put their guard up a little bit. And maybe it would be better if they did not bear the image of God and let God be the center, but they started to bear the image of themselves and that maybe they should become the center. Maybe it would be safer. Maybe it would be wiser. Maybe it would be more shrewd if I started to only trust in myself and nobody else. Maybe it would be better to be independent from God. Remember what we said last week, God creates a kingdom where he is the king, he's the center, his people are his image bearers who use their freedom and their power to voluntarily represent God. And this was Satan's strategy to trick God's image bearers to voluntarily revolt and use their freedom and their power against God and for themselves instead. And so here's Satan's lie, verse five. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You won't need God. You won't need to represent him. You can represent yourself. You don't need God's word. You have your own word. You can be independent of God. In fact, he gave you free will and the power and authority and ability and all those things. Use that to be the center of your own story. So verse six, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And at that moment, when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, rejected God's word, believed the lies of Satan and sought to be independent from God, everything broke. The shalom that we talked of in the beginning broke. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They ran. In that moment, Adam and Eve felt fear. It's a new feeling. They felt shame. They hated themselves. I need to be a better person. Other people, they judge me. Why am I the way that I am? They felt shame for the first time. Insecurity. They were naked. I need to go cover up. I need to project a different image of who I am than who I really am because I feel shame. Like in this moment, something fundamentally changed about the nature of humanity. Our ability to bear the image of God was marred. We now were turned into ourselves. We turned in on ourselves. And we had a nature and an instinct to subdue the earth and to subdue others for ourselves and not for God. Everything changed. That's why after Eve ate of that fruit, she looked at Adam and realized that she was naked and exposed. She feared that Adam, one who had been given strength and free will from God would subdue her. So she runs, she hides, she covers up. She sees someone who represents his own desires with his freedom and his strength and his abilities. No longer the love of God. I can't trust that person. Same thing with Adam. He sees Eve and he realizes he's naked and exposed. I gotta cover up. She sees someone who has been given freedom and strength and power from God and she could subdue him. So he runs, he hides because he sees someone who represents herself now, not God. And not only did they run and hide from each other, we also see that they ran and hide, hid from God, their creator, the one who had always perfectly loved them and provided everything for them. Look at this, verses eight to 10. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What that tells us is that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? He knew. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, exposed, and I hid myself. Our nature had changed. We are now people who will try and subdue God, other people in the creation to be the center of our own story. We are now people who instinctually are selfish. People who instinctually will look after ourselves before we even think of God or others. We are now people who live to represent ourselves and not God. And we see this new fallen nature starting in verse 11. 
where he says, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's not me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it's not me. The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Right, we see Adam refused to accept responsibility. And out of a desire to protect himself, to project something different, out of a desire to represent his ego, he blame shifts to Eve. We all see Adam refuse to repent before God, his creator, and seek forgiveness. He digs in his heels because who's God now? Me. Adam decided in his heart that it would be better for him to be king and not God. Right? We see Eve do the same thing. Instead of repentance, instead of remorse, instead of going to God, her creator, and falling on her knees and begging for mercy, realizing what she's done, she's got to protect ego. Because who's God now? I'm God. The instinct of my heart is to protect, to put the guard up, to project a different image of who I am. Serpent did it. Blame shifts. The God that Adam and Eve now worship is no longer the one true God, the creator. It is themselves. God and his image bearers are now enemies, alienated from one another. And God says, I can't be in your presence. If we go to the end of the chapter, verses 23 and 24, it says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is this warrior angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what that means. That God kicked us out of his kingdom, and he said, you will never make your way back. I will make sure that there would be nothing that you can do to get back. I'm guarding my kingdom from you now. And so we're now a people who have been alienated from God, who now by nature see ourselves as God, and the creation is now broken. And every human being who would be born after Adam and Eve, you and I, everyone in this room, would be born with a sinful nature, a nature that is turned in on self and against God. That's what Genesis 3, that's what's, happened to the world around us. That's why we experience the world that we experience. And so having studied that, I want us to take away two things from this, this morning, two things. And here's the first one, that this is the, the definition of sin. In sin, we have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of our story. Right? We see the abilities God has given us, the people around us, the creation of God and everyone. We see all of that as existing for the purpose of serving me. Right? This is sin, when we place ourselves at the center and not God. This, this is why Romans 14, 23 says, from whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a big definition of sin. For whatever does not proceed from faith faith in who God is, faith in his word, faith in what God created us to be, anything that does not proceed from that is sin. 
This is why Romans 1.25 describes sin this way. It says that all of us, humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We were deceived by the enemy and worshiped and served the creature, ourselves, rather than the creator. We worship ourselves over God. So this is a radical definition of sin, but it's biblical. It's a biblical definition of sin. Anything that we touch, anything that we interact with, anything we subdue, anything that we control is to be to the glory of God, to represent him in his rule on earth. Anything other than that is sin. Right? Sin is not just a moral category. It's not just about right and wrong. It's not just about behavior. It's about who is central in your heart. Right, So your money. God has entrusted you and me with money as his image bearer to use that money to represent and glorify him. So that means we take every penny that we have, every, every penny, and we put it before God and we say, God, how do I represent you with this? How do I bear your image with this? Anything other than that is sin with our money. And so I know in our 21st century Western wealthy context, we say, ah, come on, God isn't that radical. No, he is. Like our faith is not extracurricular. It's not on the side. It's everything. Like are we using our money with God at the center of the story or are we abusing our money so that we can be the center of the story? That's the question. So if if God told you, sell the house, downsize, liquidate some assets, change your lifestyle, use the proceeds to advance your local church or to fund a missionary or to help your neighbor, does God have that kind of rule over you? Or is it too far? Or think about your time. God has entrusted you with time as his image bearer to use your time to represent him and glorify him. That means you take your whole calendar and you put it before God and you say, God, I wanna bear your image with my time. I wanna glorify you. There's nothing that's off the table. I bear your image, not my image. Anything other than that is sin. If God said to you, you gotta change some things in your schedule, You gotta change the activities your kids are involved in. You gotta change your travel schedule or your leisure schedule or some of the things you wanna do because you're neglecting gathering with the church and you're not being encouraged in the gospel on a regular basis and you're not encouraging someone in the gospel on a regular basis. I told you to do that in Hebrews 10. So let's change some things. Like does God have that kind of rule over you? If God said, get a different job so you have more availability for ministry, does he have that kind of rule over you? I'm not saying he's saying those things to you, but do we take it all before God and say, it is for you to tell me how to bear your image with my time, with my money? Are we using our time with God at the center? Are we abusing our time with us at the center? It could be anything in life, guys, like our careers. What if God said, quit the job and you're gonna start training to go across seas to preach the gospel? You're like, God would never call me to say that. Every missionary has said that. Does he have that kind of rule over us? Our sexuality. God has said, 
Your sexuality is to bear my image. It's to represent me. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm the center, not you. So do we take it before God and say, God, how do I bear your image with this? Show me. It, it, it's everything in our lives. Anything we withhold and say to God, this is for me, it's not for you, their sin. And there's something in us, I just wanna, I, wanna, I want you to hear this. There's something in us, this little whisper in our ear that's saying, man, that's radical. Man, that's a lot. That's like over the top. That's Jesus freak stuff. Right, right? That, that's, that's socially awkward to live that way. That's not how normal Christians live their lives. It, it's almost like someone is saying to us in our ears, did God really say he wants you to bear his image with everything? I mean, what's really going to happen if you just continue to live your life the way you've been doing it? And you didn't change, you didn't offer everything up to God. What would, what would actually happen? And that's Satan. Whispering those lies. He is so crafty. Church, you have to hear this. Satan is so crafty and Satan's job is to rob you of your joy. That's what he's doing. And he's so good. He's so good at luring us away from faithfulness to God and away from our joy. Remember, God created us in love. He wants our joy. And there is joy and there's peace in submitting to God as king and bearing his image. And there is brokenness and suffering and death when we rebel against that. So with all that said, here's the second thing we need to know. That's the definition of sin. Here's the second thing. Is there's nothing we can do about it. Humanity has fallen away from God. We have a fallen nature. We're turned against God. We, we do not have the power to change our hearts. You know, one of the reasons we might wrestle with this definition of sin that I just laid out for us, it's, it's so big. It's so pervasive. It's inescapable. It almost feels suffocating when you think about that being sin. It's not this small definition of sin, like, you know, clean up your mouth or stop drinking so much. It's, it's a big definition of sin that infects our motives and our beliefs and our actions and down into our nature of who we are. And we can't do anything about it. If you remember in Genesis three, God places that cherubim. He guards his kingdom. He says, you will not make it back on your own. But because God is love, and because he really is after your joy. Because he is most glorified in our joy. Although we can't do anything about it, he can and he has. If you remember from last week, we read from Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, and we learned about how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the perfect image of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And so Jesus is sent by God to pursue after us. And God tells us he's gonna do this in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. He says, an offspring of this woman's gonna crush the head of that serpent. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15. He's referring to his son. 
I gotta kick my people out of my kingdom, but I am sending a savior after him and he sends Jesus. And Jesus lives this life and he perfectly represents God the Father because he is the perfect image of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. And there's not a more vivid picture, I I don't think of this, of, of Jesus being the image of God than in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours before Jesus was going to be arrested and crucified. Hours before he would experience the suffering and a death brought into this world by by our sin. Jesus knew that it was the will of his father and that it would be to the glory of the father if he went to the cross. And this was Jesus' prayer. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't wanna have to endure. The humanity in Jesus was tempting him with a a different will than his father. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I'm not here to bear the image of sinful humanity. I'm here to bear your image. It's your will. And Jesus would be obedient to represent the love of God, to be the image of God on that cross. And he would pay off the debt of our sin so that we could be welcomed back into the kingdom of God. So that we could go be back in God's presence. The curtain that was torn in two in the temple that separates us from God had cherubim embroidered all over it. God rips that in two when Jesus pays off the debt of our sin. But then Jesus does something more than that. Not only do we receive forgiveness and redemption from our sins, Jesus then gives us a new heart, a heart that is no longer marred, that is no longer unable to bear the image of God, but can gloriously bear the image of God. A heart that has new desires, A heart that says, I can see the goodness in bearing God's image and I can see the suffering and evil when I bear my own image. And Jesus says, I will freely give this to you, forgive you of your sin and give you a new heart that no longer wants to live for yourself, but wants to live for me. Where we say like Jesus did in the garden, even in hard times, not what I will, but what you will, God. I love how Paul defines this in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He says, Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We can finally begin to taste true joy again. We can have a taste of this shalom, this peace that was at creation, true fellowship with God and with others. When we come to Christ, receive his forgiveness and let him begin to repair our hearts, change our desires, change the way that we live. When we make ourselves the center of our story, we only discover brokenness. And in love, God created us not to be the center of our story because he's after our joy. He's after our peace and our security. God is most glorified when we experience the shalom of his creation and his kingdom. So what in your life are you withholding from God? Where is it are you saying, I bear my image here, God, not yours?
Where do you refuse to bear God's image? Are you believing Satan's most effective lie to American Christians? That God only wants a little bit of your life and the rest of it you're free to have to yourself. That's Satan's craftiest lie in our country. He only wants a little bit of it. So I just wanna give us some time as we close here, just, just for some silent reflection, just one or two minutes. And I just want you to you know, close your eyes so you're not distracted by anything around you and just between you and God, what, what is it? What, where are you withholding? Where are you saying, God, I, I don't want you to be king over this part of my life. I'm afraid of what's gonna happen. I'm afraid of what you're gonna tell me to do. We all have that fear. All of us have that fear. God, I don't want you to be king over it all. And maybe this can just be a time of confession before the Lord and say, God, this is where I struggle. And I wanna bring this before you. Help me to trust you as king and not myself as king in this area of my life. And maybe for some of you, I'm not sure if everyone in here follows Jesus or maybe you're still exploring what you believe about Jesus. But you have experienced the brokenness of the world. And this is why it's there. And it's only in Jesus do we find forgiveness and we find repair for our hearts and we find hope for a future in his kingdom forever. Let me pray. And then we'll end our time in some singing. God, just for a minute, we wanna come silently before you right now just to reflect. I pray your Holy Spirit would illumine areas of our lives that, Lord, we have a hard time giving over to you. Would you reveal those to us right now? God, for the things that we have brought before you or you have illumined in our hearts right now, we praise you, Lord, that they are not the end of us, We praise you, God, that they don't control our identity. We praise you, God, that your mercies are new every single morning. We praise you, God, that you're not seething in anger at us or annoyance God, we're all works in progress. For those of us who know you, you are changing our hearts bit by bit every day. And we praise you that we stand in your grace, forgiven, made new, welcomed into your kingdom. Not because we found a way to get there, but because you came and got us. So Lord, I pray that in the midst of our confession, you would bring restoration in Christ, knowing that, Lord, we stand as a child of God, forgiven and reconciled with you, no longer your enemy. And Lord, I pray you would bring trust, that we would trust you as our Father, that you know what's best for us. You know what brings us joy. You know what brings us fulfillment. We don't know that, Lord, on our own. We need you. So God, help us to stand before you naked and exposed, 
and to trust you as our Father and as our King and help us to follow you. We love you, God, and we ask these things in Christ's name. 